Think we just dive right in, huh? Yeah, let's just let's just roll. Welcome to another episode of the Utah Geospatial Podcast. This is Greg Bunce. And I'm Matt Peters. And we're from the Utah Geospatial Resource Center. And this podcast will be bringing you geospatial news from across Utah. So today on the show, we're going to hear from Kate Staley. Uh, but before that, Matt and I thought that we would kind of give a high-level overview of SITLA, where they've come from and, and why they're important in the state. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, you got to go back to Thomas Jefferson, you know, who really believed that a strong democracy is founded upon education for all. And so Jefferson proposed that, well, every new state entering the Union, land should be set aside to support public schools and important institutions. So lo and behold, Utah, 1896, Congress granted land called trust lands to the new state of Utah with the provision that the revenue earned from the sale or lease of the land would be placed into permanent endowments for 12 institutions. Uh, Public education, Utah School for the Deaf and Utah School for the Blind, Utah State Hospital, Juvenile Justice Services, the Miners Hospital, University of Utah, Utah State University, College of Education, College of Mines and Earth Sciences, U of U, uh, reservoirs and building. Wow. Like, how come we didn't get in on this? I guess. I mean, mean, UGRC was established back in the 1890s, right? So so we did get you there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I think that's important to to bring all that up. And and that is different from, I guess, CITLA. That that literally is just Congress saying that, that you at statehood get trust lands as a state. You get a certain amount of sections. Um, and for us, it was, what, 2, 16, 32, and 36. But that yeah. doesn't seem to be across the board. I was kind of looking into some of the other states before us. Some some are, some early states got maybe one section per township, um, but it was a little bit scattered. And a, a couple other interesting things I noticed was Texas didn't seem to get any federal land. I don't think there was any federal land there in Alaska. By the time Alaska went to statehood in 19, um, what was it, 19, well, it was in the 1900s. Essentially, they kind of did away with, I guess, 1958, uh, Congress did away with that, the whole trust lands and said, hey, pick 100 million acres as federal land and reserve it as forest, which which somebody said I found uh, equated to about 10 sections per township if you added it up. But yeah, really, you know, what you're saying, so a lot of this can go back to the general land ordinance of 1785 and the Northwest Ordinance that basically, like you're saying, says as a state, at statehood, here's some land to, to use for, for finances, right? Yeah, yeah. And it just, you know, when you think about that section 2, 16, 32, 36, like how, how more disparate could you get in a township? Right. Yeah, SITLA puts them together and uh, kind of uh, consolidates them so they can get uh, a bigger, like a bigger development or a mineral lease or rent or royalties, uh, 
a variety of those things. And, you know, do, do you know what year Sitla was uh, created? Yeah, 1994 by the Utah legislature. Well, and I wow. guess at that point, originally in statehood, we were granted about 7 million acres. But by the time 1994 came around, uh, we had about 3.4 million acres left. So about half um, when Sitla was set up to kind of then start to manage these lands. Wow. And then, then did you know that they have generated, since 94, they have generated 1.96 billion in revenue? That's, that's, and, yeah, that's kind of crazy. Yeah, to help grow all the permanent funds to 2.5 billion. Wow. Yeah. Which, which primarily is the, I think I was noticing on the website, like 95% of that is this, this public schools get, right, of all that whatever that revenue they dish out so that yeah. two billion just kind of sits in account but then they they dole out i believe in 2020 it was saying uh, uh what was it about 95 million dollars wow and 80 something million goes to schools specifically and of that about 25 percent of that um, the schools decide to use for computers tablets and stuff Hmm. And I guess that's kind of, you know, when you think of that, think of the sections that Sitla gets. I mean, you can see why they have Kate and her team doing GIS work, because there's a lot of uh, spatial analysis that has to happen to keep all this land straight. And I think, like you said, the land swapping, where it's so... It's so scattered throughout. Didn't, didn't you have some examples up in Box Elder, or are you aware of something going on up there where they're trying? Well, you know, just through my work at UGRC, you know, I look at the state a lot and look up in in Box Elder County, and it almost seems like in parts of Box Elder, it looks like the original pattern, uh, where in a lot of other parts of the state, the land has been consolidated. So, Box Elder is just uh, this funny decoration of blue squares for me. Yeah, it's just, I just find it fascinating. Well, I think that's a good background on, on leading into our interview here with Kate. Any, anything else? No, I'd say let's, let's put her on. All right. Well, let's hear from Kate. Do you feel like this is an interrogation? Oh, yes. I think the main thing we're trying to get at is, you know, this first time we just were just talking to people, getting a little bit of their background. But the uh, so Greg has some generic questions. But I think in the future, I think we really you guys really have some issues that we can discuss and that will help people understand more about SITLA and and what the importance is. So maybe the best thing to do today is to start out with um, maybe just a little background on you and how you got into GIS. Sure. Um, As a little kid, I always loved maps. Um, The World Atlas was my favorite book. (laughs) I used to memorize different cities and the flags of the different countries. Um, And I also, you know, used to draw imaginary cities and islands as a kid just for the fun of it. Um, When I got out of high school and started going, you know, going to college, I wanted to study 
meteorology because I had this weird obsession with the weather, thunderstorms in particular. So I thought that would be pretty cool. And it, it also has lots of maps involved too. So I was I was pretty stoked about that. Um, but after taking a semester of the required courses for meteorology, um, I decided that calculus in differential equations was not for me. <laughs> so um, I decided to pursue a geography degree at the University of Utah um, and also the GIS certificate. Um, and then after taking the cartography class and an intro to GIS class, I realized that this was something I wanted to do. I was hooked. Um, and I realized that this was a field that, you know, was going to be advancing at all times um, and continuing to advance. And I, I thought that was pretty cool. So I graduated in 2006 with my degree in geography. And then I got an internship with um, CITLA. And then I've been with CITLA ever since. Wow, I am bored human with a feather. That is quite a story. Matt, yeah. your mic might be, it sounds a little funny. I don't know if you need to get closer to it or if there's a little bit of an echo. I think okay. it's three years. There you go. There That's you perfect. Go. Okay, cool. I think it's interesting that, um, yeah, you kind of came into GIS from a different field or, or you know, you, you started out in either meteorology or something and then, and then GIS, you know, appears. That's, that almost seems like a common way folks enter into GIS. Right. But yeah, so, so, so CITLA, the Schools and Institutional Trust Land Administration, it's a, it's a mouthful there. Um, it is. Yeah. And a super cool, you know, administration, the stuff that you guys do over there. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking of is we, we manage the state geographic information database. And one of the, one of the key layers in that database is the, um, the land ownership layer. And, you know, maybe you could, maybe you could talk about a little bit about that or, or what's happening at CITLA, what other layers and yeah. Sure. Um, so right now, cur currently, um, the the Utah Test and Training Range Exchange was recently approved for the exchange of lands between the BLM and CITLA. And the purpose of the exchange was to consolidate land ownership for both BLM and CITLA and to remove CITLA ownership within the, the test and training range boundaries where development would be incompatible with critical national defense uses of the range. So right now we are currently working to update the land ownership to reflect um, the approval of the exchange. And that should be updated within this week, I think. Um, and then we'll be updating, updating our maps to show that. Um, another project that's keeping us busy is um, integrating the land ownership to the current PLSS version. Um, currently, our land ownership is aligned to the 2006 version of PLSS, and it's really outdated. Um, so our group has come up with a plan using ArcGIS Pro um, to rubber sheet the land ownership to the current PLSS. And once we've you know, 
successfully have done this with the land ownership. Our goal is to do this with our other, you know, working layers. And I think I'm, I'm aware of some of that that's happening at uh, at UGRC as well. Some of the some of the roles that we're playing in that. Um, but back to so so land exchange is a lot of is a lot of the management and maintenance of the land ownership layer. Um, swapping out layers like that, or swapping out land like that with exchanges, like what what keeps that layer so active? Because I think of that as a very active layer. It it really just depends on. Um how BLM and 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 CITLA decide what they want to trade in 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 and out of um, you know it can be it can be changing constantly constantly i believe this exchange has been going on since 2016 or 2017 so you can see it's been it's been a long long process and there's there is changes to the exchange all you know, all up until this finally got approved. And there's and there's different exchanges going on as well on that layer, right? Not just with the BLM, or is it only BLM? Um, we do have other exchanges. Most of them are with the BLM. For instance, the Bears Ears and the Emory County Exchange. Um, those are both with the BLM. We do, however, um, once in a while have exchanges. Um, with other state agencies like the DWR, um, or maybe sometimes not usually private, but it's usually other state agencies, but mainly the federal government. So Kate, I'm kind of curious about uh, some of your challenges and, and solutions you've kind of implemented to get over those challenges. Sure. Um, so, as I stated before, um, we we are trying to integrate the land ownership current PLSS lines. Um, we started this process in 2016, um, and we partnered with two other agencies to accomplish this. And we decided that we wanted to go forth by using Esri's parcel fabric. Um, so our goal was to have one complete land ownership layer that would always be in sync with the PLSS. Um, this has been a very, very long process. It's been tedious. We've had many bumps in the road. And the parcel fabric is just a complicated beast. Um, I don't think it has really been tested enough on statewide a statewide basis. It's mainly, I think, for your local county or, or cities. Um, so it's been really difficult to try to navigate. Um, another, another issue that we've had with this project is that the different agencies are in different versions of ARC. Um, so you have maybe one person's in ARC Pro, Another's in, you know, ArcMap 10.5, another's in Arc 10.8, and it makes it very difficult to really coordinate and sync the land ownership. So CITLA, CITLA we decided to um, just break away from that um, and kind of decided to go with using ArcGIS Pro and using a rubber sheeting method. Um, so what we're in the process of doing right now 
is creating rubber sheet links between the old and the new PLSS, and then basically verifying those links to make sure everything looks good. Um, and once we have that all set, we intend to use those links to do the whole, the rubber sheeting process to move the land ownership to the current PLSS. I wanted to point out and, and, and acknowledge that you guys were early on with us as we tried to move um, with more data sharing. So originally the land ownership layer in the SGID, we were picking up from you guys with Python scripts on a weekly basis, and then we were duplicating it on our side. Um, but we had this idea about a year or two ago to just kind of pick up your data live using ArcGIS Online and, and streamline metadata and stuff. And you guys were one of the early adopters of that. And just wanted to point that out that, you know, we've worked with you on the metadata, getting that, you know, in a, in a way that that fits into the SGID well. And, um, and also that, you know, that layer now, if you hit that layer in the SGID, it's, it's literally hitting your live data. And I think that's cool. There's no more lag time or shelf life in at a, at UGRC on that layer. So thanks for being right. able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and our, t our intent is to, you know, once we get the land ownership integrated, we're going to work with UGRC to, to make a plan with, you know, to do, updates on a regular basis. So we're always in sync with each other. But yeah, the parcel fabric just was not, it wasn't working for SITLA and it was just, it was very time consuming. And we we really need to get the land ownership moved over now. And it's just, it's been taking a long time. Yeah, it sounds like a manual process. Yeah. Yeah, big challenge. What are, um, Thinking about the land ownership layer, what are what are to you? What are some common uses of that layer that you're aware of? Well, obviously, um, you know, I think a lot of people use it for references. Am I on federal land or am I on state? Or am I on private? Um, I think a lot of people do use it as a more detailed reference. Um, you know, I think. For, for boundaries and trespass and, and so forth. But um yeah, I think it's I think it's used a lot, you know, with other agencies and in the public just to see where somebody might be at on the map. Um, maybe they use it for collecting data out in the field or just, you know, as a reference on their maps. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's a highly used layer. A good point. I mean, I view it as one of our tier one or what we call our, our framework layers, um, you know, something that gets regular updates, something that has solid metadata. We have a good relationship with the steward and also um, it's heavily used and, and data sets can be derived from it or tied to it. And I think it, it checks all of those boxes. So I totally agree. I think it's it's a valuable layer to the state. Yeah. I guess, Kate, I'm kind of curious. You have... For, for your agency, you have quite a GIS team. How many folks have you got? So including me, there are five. And so we have um, Barry Biedeker, uh, Brady Johnson, Gage Coates, and Katie Romig. 
Wow. And, and everybody keeps pretty busy, eh? We are extremely busy with just exchanges, applications, and trying to figure out ways to improve our online portal to make our data more accessible. What is the heaviest used data sets that you guys have? Um, I would say definitely the land ownership is one of those, but also like in-house, I would say like our all of our contract layers, like easements and special use lease agreement, um, you know, oil and gas contracts, um, just things like that. Yeah, that makes sense. It, is the land ownership the one that uh, requires the most effort and maintenance? I would say so, yes. Well, thank you again for coming on the show, and it's sure. definitely been informative for me, so I appreciate Good. your time. Good. Thank you. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, I think that went well. There you go. Another yep. one in the books. <clears throat> almost. Yep, almost. Yeah. You got it. I think that was great. I think we read the same page, which was great. <laughs> when you started off with Thomas Jefferson, I said, uh, I think this is the page that I looked at. <laughs> Yeah, because I sure as hell don't know any of that. <laughs>